Good afternoon, and thanks for joining. Uh, this panel is going to be talking about the evolution of long-term asset allocation. And uh, maybe some of the views will be a little bit less sanguine than some of the things I've heard over the last couple of days. And we're in the middle of a very uh, bullish market. Uh, the risk on trade is alive and well, and we're going to maybe try to get the allocator view. Uh, not necessarily lost on me, it may be the folks in the audience, and I'm not sure if uh, Nick or anybody else from Case IQ is here, but up in the salt stage, probably literally above us, is the evolution of the private markets investing, the GP side. So maybe we could do a point-counterpoint or a split screen on Case IQ. I think it would be very interesting. Or we can maybe crash that party afterwards. Uh, but perhaps I'll have my panel introduce themselves uh, first and uh, just, I think the bio's in the program, but maybe just to hit the high points and, and uh, your plan. And, uh, and Al, I'll start with you. Thanks, Bill. So Al Kim, I'm with the Helmsy Charitable Trust, uh, which is a private foundation based in New York. Uh, Helmsy's mission overall is to help improve lives in the U.S. and globally uh, by supporting uh, and funding various healthcare research initiatives. Type 1 diabetes and Crohn's disease being two of our bigger programs. On the investment side, we manage a $8.5 billion endowment. We invest across asset classes. We are very opportunistic. Uh, and we implement using a, a concentrated approach uh, in um, our manager relationships. Thanks, Al. Gita? I'm Gita Kapadia, and I head up the investment team at Yale New Haven Health System. We are the Academic Medical Center associated with Yale University, based in New Haven, Connecticut. My team and I manage about $5.6 billion worth of investable assets, covering defined benefit, defined contribution, and endowment-like um, assets. We manage across the spectrum from very plain vanilla fixed income all the way to private equity, venture capital, and real estate. Thanks. I'm Angelique Sellers, uh, Managing Director of Investments at Penn State University. I don't think I need to tell you what Penn State does, but uh, uh, we manage a pool of assets of about $6.1 billion, and it, much like my fellow uh, panelists allocated from anything from fixed income to private equity, venture, natural resources, commodities. You name it, we probably have it. Thanks, Angelique. So uh, since you have the mic, maybe I'll start with you and, and work our way around. Uh, so I saw recently Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, who by all accounts is a very sophisticated allocator sovereign wealth fund, and they just put their annual report out. And for a pretty secretive organization, there was a lot of public information in there. Uh, and the name of the port report is called Prudent Global Growth. And their 30-year return annualized is 7.2% probably a little bit below what many public funds are shooting for as a bogey. So I want to start the conversation by saying that being an allocator is not an easy job. Uh, and this space has gotten very, very complex. The endowment model is now over 50 years old. So, so maybe starting a private equity, which has gotten a lot of play at this conference in the marketplace, is that an asset class in your view or more of a very complex industry? In, in our view, it is more of a complex industry and we've been very sort of bottom up about it. We don't have any particular buckets to fill generally in our portfolio. So when we look for managers, we, we, we can create a bucket rather than have a bucket and put the manager in there. And so on the private equity side, it is a very difficult job right now given where things stand in terms of valuations, which has already been discussed at this conference. But uh, uh, we're still finding opportunities. We're looking more kind of sector focus a little bit more kind of uh, differentiation. We're looking at smaller deal sizes and managers kind of focused on that right now. 
So, Agita, maybe the same theme, and I'm going to leave Adia after this, but they describe private equity as intense and accelerating in terms of the competition. So what do you think about the current vintage year and accessing perhaps different vintage years, either through secondaries or do you think about uh, co-investing or direct investing? And maybe your plan is of such a size that some of those are not viable. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity for investors such as um, such as us, but it's often quite difficult to differentiate between true opportunity and what may be um, a temporary um, interest area of interest for us. So we're very fortunate in that we tend to be um, similar to Alan Angelique. We tend to be very long-term investors. So when we consider opportunities in the private space, we're really able to think of them over you know a 10 to 20-year time frame. And we've been very fortunate in that we don't really look at cyclical parts of whether or not parts of the market are attractive or less attractive or overvalued or undervalued. We're really just trying to make consistent commitments over time. And it may play, um, you know, we may be able to participate through a co-invest or a secondaries opportunity, um, but really similar to the way Angelique described it, we're really looking at very bottom-up um, fundamental opportunities that seem to partner well with what we're trying to achieve over the long term. And so they can uh, manifest themselves through a variety of different um, structures or, or deals. And the importance on manager selection in the process? Yeah, we're, we feel very strongly about um, very fundamental manager due diligence, particularly on the private side. Again, we feel like there's a lot of um, uncertainty, and so to be able to really understand the managers with which we're partnering is probably the highest priority. It's been difficult during COVID, obviously more difficult than it was in the past, but in some ways it's presented us with new opportunities to meet fellow allocators, to do reference checks with other investment managers, talk to leaders in the industry, and really just feel like we have even more pieces to the puzzle to be able to make a good investment decision. Uh, Al, maybe just closing out the discussion of private equity, uh, maybe the view from Helmsley in terms of uh, how you think about this market in terms of sector, geography, the SME space versus the buyout space. Uh, how do you think about allocating to private equity? Yeah, so I guess compared to other uh, foundations based in New York that have been around for, for decades, uh, the Helmsley Trust is actually uh, fairly, fairly new. Uh, the, the team really got started in 2010 uh, upon uh, the 2007 passing of Leona Helmsley. And so uh, the Helmsley team was in a place where it was essentially uh, started the investment office from scratch. It convinced our investment committee and trustees to, to build out a private capital program from, from nothing. And so um, 10 years later, um, it, it definitely has been a journey uh, in the beginning, we started uh, investing in private debt strategies in order to mitigate the J-curve and to the extent possible to, to not report uh, a negative return, uh, while at the same time trying to knock on uh, some of the best VC managers out there uh, to see if we can get access to their funds. Um, I think the, the last five, 10 years have shown and have proved to our trustees and our committee that uh, private capital definitely has a place uh, in Helmsley's portfolio long term. Our target uh, when we first uh, launched the program was 25% of Helmsley's overall portfolio. Uh, we have since increased that target to 35. And through very good appreciation, we're, we're currently sitting at 40. And so uh, we are very strong believers. If you look at uh, our performance in that segment the last five years, uh, we've been up 
25% uh, annualized returns. And so uh, that's probably more than 10% above what we've gotten from our public equity, our liquid market segment. And so I think uh, for us, we invest with conviction. Uh, I think some segments within uh, private capital like venture, uh, if you can't access very good managers, I don't think you should be invested at all, right? And, and for, for Helmsley, fortunately, uh, some of the big VC managers have blessed us with allocations uh, and have let us in. And so we're uh, leveraging those relationships that we have uh, to continue to build out our uh, private capital program. So I want to ask you a follow-up question on, on private debt with maybe a, another lead. So I'm not a big uh, Twitter guy, but when it comes to salt, you got to get your, your Twitter game uh, together. And I posted something on Twitter last night that I saw that the European hedge fund index is now yielding 2.34%, where inflation is at 3. So on a real basis, you don't have to be a math major to understand that that is upside down and negative. So when you think about private debt, or maybe you could take this as a general question too, Al, that if I think about the sharp ratio related to alts, it doesn't necessarily play all the time, but being compensated for a unit of risk being taken is something every investor should be thinking about. So either generally or more specifically in the private debt market, is it hard to find opportunity uh, at this stage of the market where rates are so low, and particularly if you can't even get a, a positive uh, real spread on high yield? Yeah, so um, at Helmsley, how, how we structure our portfolio is that at the highest level, we have what we call safe assets, which are investment-grade bonds uh, and, and uh, assets that we can essentially liquidate within uh, a couple days. And then we have our return-generating segment, which has three separate components, uh, the liquid segment, the semi-liquid segment, and the illiquid segment. And so it's not, we don't categorize those assets by asset classes, it's by liquidity because we think uh, as a grant-making organization, having enough liquidity to fund our grants year over year is our uh, main objective. Uh, within each of the, the categories, we have different return hurdles. Now, these aren't set in stone, but for us to, for so anyone on our team to try to pitch something that gets into our illiquid segment, it really needs to deliver at least a 15% net return and something in the 1.5, 1.6x at least. Because essentially, because we're fully invested in our liquid segment, those dollars, commitment dollars, are competing with some of the big VC managers. Mm -hmm. and, they, and those managers are returning well into the 20s, if not 30s. And so uh, for our liquid segment, uh, I would say mid-15s at least. Our semi-liquid segment, uh, which is where we include hedge funds, uh, I would say we it's really hard to um, convince the team to buy something within that segment that's uh, below 10%. And so it is hard to, uh, in, to try to squeeze private debt into our portfolio. Uh, I have tried and gotten vetoed down, uh, but uh, with, with the current spreads on, on private debt, it's very challenging. Uh, so, Gita, I, I was going to try to work through some verticals. Uh, I, I have a hedge fund question. If you want to follow up on private debt, you can too. But, uh, but hedge funds have been, I think, to some degree, unfairly uh, become a bit of a punching bag over the last uh, 12 years. And again, I think if you look at it as an asset class, maybe deserved. If you look at it as a complex industry with many different strategies tucked inside, maybe a bit unfair. But, but there's an interesting debate about hedge funds. Are they diversifiers or return enhancers? Uh, do you have a view one way or the other on how do hedge funds work their way into your uh, plan? So we think of hedge funds as 
a little bit of both. I mean, I think from a diversification standpoint, there's the clear argument to be made relative to the long only side of the portfolio. Um, and potentially if there's a fixed income allocation as well. We try and be very deliberate about our hedge fund portfolio and think about those assets, um, not only in their own absolute return type um, frame, but also in a bigger picture holistic sense as it relates to the total portfolio. So we may have exposure to a number of different um, industries, securities, geographies, but separating the hedge funds out from the rest of the portfolio may make it look very different than um, the actual exposure. So we think of it um, definitely as a diversifier, but we also expect them to be able to add value um, over, you know, over the long term. So um, you know, each of those names in that portfolio are very specifically selected and evaluated to be able to add a certain part um, or to play a certain role, I should say, within um, the overall total endowment. And at this stage of the market, uh, tail risk uh, hedging, does that work its way into the asset allocation mix? So we've thought a lot about it and we've met with a lot of providers in this space because we think there is a lot of um, potential opportunity there as it relates to um, you know, uh, payments that need to be made. As a health system, as you can imagine, over the last year and a half, we've learned quite a bit about what liquidity means and particularly to a finance leadership of a health system. Um, it's thought of very, you know, on a daily basis, um, very closely we think about it. So we have talked about tail risk hedging. We haven't implemented yet, but I think there are a lot of good players in, the, in that um, asset class that uh, we may be talking to over the next year or so. Uh, Angelique uh, from Penn State, hedging? Hedge, hedge funds, funds yeah, we, we have about 11, 12% in, in hedge strategies, but uh, they're diversifiers for us. And we kind of established a long time ago that we're not going to do uh, strategies that have too much beta in them. Like that, for, for, for these reasons, we don't do loan short equity typically with a 60%, 70% net long. It's something that we have never done. Uh, so they have pretty much as a co collectively, they have a beta of pretty much zero to anything. But we also benchmark them to Barclays Ag. So all they have to do is to, to do better than bonds. And so that's kind of how we position that. It's as kind of a bond substitute without the duration risk. And what well, that makes a little bit more money. Okay. Uh, Al, anything from uh, Helmsy on? Yeah, so, so our semi-liquid segment that I mentioned, which, is, uh, which includes investments that Helmsy makes that um, uh, invest in vehicles with up to two years of liquidity, where essentially we can put our, put, put our money into a fund and if we were to redeem, if we can get our money back within two years, that those types of vehicles, which includes hedge funds, fall in our semi-liquid segment. The framework I talked about before, we definitely see it as a return generating asset, right? So if you look at the five hedge funds that we have in our current portfolio, the lowest returning one is a long short credit uh, special situations fund that since inception has done a 10% net return with like a 5% volatility. The other ones are pretty much equity-based uh, strategies, whether it's healthcare or technology, really based on uh, some of the themes that we have and some of the sectors that our team has uh, where we think those sectors will benefit long-term. And so uh, the, the hedge funds that we have tend to be long-biased, uh, and they definitely are exposed to having drawdowns. In terms of hedging, uh, we view, uh, we, we have had experience investing in uh, a manager, a macro manager that has gone net short. Um, and we've ended up 
having a bad experience with that, and we ended up terminating that manager. But if you look at our overall asset allocation framework, we really uh, toggle between safe assets and return generating assets and manage that allocation, and we really view that as uh, our hedge against uh, downturns in the market. So if you look at our asset allocation today, we're currently sitting 24% in safe assets, so the Barclays Ag and Cash. Uh, I think while we are believers in the endowment model and in privates, the question you asked earlier, um, we are very different from other traditional endowments because we have such a big buffer of safe assets. Mm -hmm. And stuff like that, and we really view that as a hedge. And going into the pandemic, we also had about 25% in safe assets. And we think having that dry powder to invest and redeploy when the markets get shaky really like helped us uh, navigate the pandemic and, and, and the market downturn going into the pandemic. Uh, Gita, just to maybe complete the, the circuit here, uh, maybe just real estate infrastructure. Real estate's been sort of topical because of this, the commercial real estate and return to work, whatever that might mean around commercial uh, office buildings. And then infrastructure, obviously we've got a, a big bill that uh, is in the works of being passed. Are either one of those uh, areas that interest your plan? Yes, we've been investing um, in both of those spaces over the past you know, two plus years. We have looked quite a bit more closely at real estate, particularly as many of the managers that we partner with are really kind of looking at those class A spaces. So, you know, New York City, Washington, D.C., all of the cities where you would expect there'd be quite a bit of disruption based on COVID. Um, we've been very fortunate in that they have held up quite well and in some cases have actually used this opportunity to partner um, and become very, very hands-on with their, um, you know, with the managers on site, with the tenants. And so um, in that space, we've been, I would say, pleasantly surprised or slightly uh, overly um, maybe a bit optimistic, more optimistic than we thought we'd be. Um, you know, we continue to make investments. We don't see the last year and a half as um, changing what our plan was before the pandemic. And so we continue to engage with those managers and those GPs and continue to talk about new fundraising and are pleased that people are still in the market and still, um, you know, getting, getting plenty of LPs on board. So um, it's been better than we expected it would be. Okay. Uh, Angelique, uh, maybe uh, I want to touch on maybe cryptos, and, and you've got a student population who's very activist to some degree around uh, fossil fuels, but is your plan, uh, you in, in cryptos or any kind of NFTs or any of these emerging platforms? We've done some research and we ended up allocating capital to a, a venture firm that is dedicated kind of crypto specialists, um, but that's more kind of, not, they don't do coins or anything like that, they invest in, in so it's like the, infrastructure. Kind of the, the whole infrastructure, yeah. the digital infrastructure. Um, in terms of crypto itself, we, we kind of disagree internally. Uh, we have a couple of people who are pushing and saying that this is something we need to be jumping into and some people who are saying, no, not yet. And so we continue doing research, but anecdotally, I'm part of this email group where, which has about 60 other institutions. And so I emailed out asking about like who is involved in crypto. I probably got five responses. Two of them were involved and the, the others said they're doing research. And the rest of the people said they're not doing anything. So I think there's a lot more talk going on in, on the institutional investing side. Some bigger institutions have pulled the trigger and did some things, but sort of my peer group 
nobody's really doing much. More on the venture side, we have some other exposure on the venture, but not in actual. I'm not saying, I just don't know enough about it, so I'm on the side that says, let's just wait, hang on a minute. But uh, that's kind of, we kind of haven't really pulled the trigger on the liquid side. Okay, I'm gonna come back to that at the end around some of these disruptive technologies, but Angelique, maybe just staying with you for a moment as, as a university endowment. Uh, Harvard, I think, was in, I think it was Harvard that uh, is divesting from fossil fuels, and, and it seems like this, there's an activist movement in this direction. I want to pivot more toward uh, ESG. Uh, does, uh, does Penn State have a view on uh, ESG, or maybe more specifically climate? I think ESG has become a very confusing set of, of risks, and it's hard to manage ESG, but maybe you can focus on climate and, and how you think about that around natural resources, moving toward renewables and investments there. So in terms of endowment, we, um, we didn't have the mandate, and we still don't. So the board resolution doesn't mention anything about it. Having said that, the university itself is obviously doing all kinds of things. There's sustainability office. And generally, university overall, since it's such a big school, probably can make more impact from that perspective. And you have to look at all kinds of different areas of research and things like that than the endowment itself. So we, we haven't really had too much of a push, but we're looking at it ourselves because I don't think it's a trend you can ignore. And we're also looking at how we can make money on the trend, right? So in, instead of kind of arguing with the student body, we, not, we actually asked a couple of students to intern this summer and they did a lot of work in terms of sustainability and kind of surveyed other institutions as to what they're doing. And so we're trying to formulate some kind of a policy, but it hasn't, it just hasn't happened yet. But we, we found some investments, investments. We made a commitment to a renewables kind of manager on the private equity side and also working on the public side, interestingly enough, with our oil trader who's starting a fund that's gonna be focused on uh, trading carbon uh, allowances, uh, metals, because you know, if, even if you have windmills, you still need to build them off something, right? So, uh, and also some equities that are focused on like batteries and hydrogen and stuff like that. So we're, we're trying to kind of do well by doing good, if you will. <laughs> so that's kind of where we are. Yeah, I think this double bottom line is still very, very difficult. And I, I think that last point you made about uh, the wind blows the hardest and the sun shines the brightest where people are not. And we need that midstream infrastructure if we're gonna get it to the masses. So I think that uh, some of these oil and gas companies have built great uh, midstream uh, capabilities. Uh, maybe working our way back this way, Gidi, uh, your views on, uh, on maybe climate more specifically than, than ESG for the moment. Yeah, we, um, you know, we've thought about the topic quite a bit, as you kind of have to um, if you're in this space. And I think similar to um, Penn State, we have not come up with a formal policy yet. I think it will be driven by our team as opposed to um, from the top down. I think our board is quite happy to think that we're doing what we should be doing <laughs> to let us kind of have at it. So we expect to bring a, a formal recommendation to our board in the next probably six months as it relates to how we want to intentionally invest. And that's kind of the phrase I've been using um, within my team. You know, there are just so many aspects to it. Climate, obviously, um, extremely important, but you know, ESG covers such a wide range of topics that in some sense, it's almost overwhelming to try and think about how you'd even put things down within a policy. So particularly as a non, you know, we're not a faith-based medical center, we are, um, 
you know, an academic in some sense medical center. And so we are working very closely with the people at the university because they have had to confront, confront this quite um, regularly due to student, um, student activity and just trying to make sure that the types of investments we're making are aligned with the mission and vision and values of the organization, which we think we're doing, but I think we could be a little bit more deliberate about it um, going forward. Uh, is greenwashing a big problem? I mean, I think, I think it's something we, we're spending time on for sure because I think it could very easily be um, something that creeps up on us and we don't realize it. And then we now have to have a, a, a sort of more formal evaluation of to the extent that it's been part of our portfolio or it could be part of our portfolio. Uh, Al, your views, I don't know, in the endowment space it might be different, uh, but uh, you don't have a constituency maybe pushing this as an agenda item, but what are your views at Helmsley? Yeah, so like, like Gita said, we're, Helmsy doesn't have a dedicated allocation to, to ESG or to energy or, or climate. Um, ha having said that, um, you know, we have over the last uh, seven, eight years committed and invested in some fossil fuel investments, which and we've had very mixed results. And so what we found in, 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 in terms of investing in energy is that um, you not only have to pick the right manager, but you also have to get the vintage year right because the commodity cycle is so long and it could either really hurt you or really help you. And so for us, we said any commitment we make in the, in the private capital segment, it, it really just needs to stand on its own. It, if we invest in energy or ESG or anything like that, uh, we're going to be very opportunistic. Uh, our, our team has been doing a lot of work in the climate space uh, because we think uh, the, this transition to a carbon, uh, low carbon emission world is a theme that's going to last for, for, for decades. Uh, we've probably met with 20 or so managers in the space, uh, but we focus more on uh, the VC and growth equity type managers that focus on investing in the technology uh, to solve some of these uh, environmental and climate tech issues. Uh, but so far, we haven't, um, we haven't met anyone that's made it to the finish line, but uh, we are doing a lot of work in that space. Okay. Uh, maybe a couple of things, maybe off climate, but on the topic of uh, ESG, uh, transparency and the culture and relationship between the GP and LP, and maybe Angelique, I'll start with you. Uh, what's the current state of play in terms of transparency around GP and LP? And you hear about you know, things about the use of credit lines to fund uh, uh, LP commitments and uh, that have an impact on returns. Uh, is transparency where it needs to be? Because now we're talking about democratization, a less sophisticated investor accessing these GPs, and, and we've got to be thinking about a client-first mentality. If we can't get it right in the institutional world, I fear that we're not going to get it right when we go more retail-based with democratization. Well, I feel that we have decent enough transparency, transparency without GP. This is one of the things that we require. And if we can't get the information that we need out of them, we just, life is too short kind of uh, situation. Uh, that said, I mean, obviously, some of the venture firms are really sensitive to the, the right to know uh, and all of that. And so we, we are, we're not subject to that. But every time we talk to uh, some venture managers, we have to like write them a letter and explain and how, how it all works. And some of them are really difficult to to get in if, if you have that kind of situation with the right to know. 
Uh, Gita may be a slightly a different theme. Uh, certainly, the Chi Association, myself personally, have been very committed to DEI, which has been very topical, and that can manifest itself in many ways. And I've made a point that I will not get involved in panels that don't have some level of gender or race diversity. It doesn't very often play out this well with the three of you. Uh, but I do want to point out that this is an important undertaking, and, and actions matter more than words. But uh, maybe talk about it from your vantage point, both uh, as a woman, as a professional, and what your expectations are uh, as you hire managers and their commitment to DEI. Yeah, it's a very um, it's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, and um, one that I spend a lot of time on, just thinking about, talking about with peers, with my colleagues, um, with leadership, and with managers, and. You know, it's um, kind of disappointing that it's 2021 and we're still feels like we're still in the same space um, that we were when I started the, in the business. But um, you know, we recently did an evaluation from a DEI perspective of our current portfolio, and it's it's really bad, very very bad, and um, it's very disappointing because I feel like internally I felt like I've been having this conversation. I know I've been having it, but clearly I haven't been having it in the way that is. It affected any change. And so, um, you know, we're all in very fortunate positions, and obviously, Bill, you as well, in that we do have a fair amount of leverage as it relates to making an impact at some of these organizations. And so, I think we have to be very deliberate about, you know, similar to the way you phrased it, you know, we're, we, we're not going to do business with you if you're not addressing this issue in some way. And it's not about, you know, doing the right thing. I mean, it is about doing the right thing, but it's about making money, right? It's about returns. I mean, diversity adds to returns. So to have everyone in the same room and look the same and speak the same and went to the same colleges, that's not really gonna add value over the long term. So we're very committed to it. Um, I have a lot of difficult conversations ahead of me. I can uh, already feel that, but I think it's important. And you know, to your point, I mean, there's no reason to have a panel <laughs> with, with only, with, you know, all men anymore. There's just so many good female um, investment professionals and professionals of color that it's very easy to have a diverse, um, a diverse group of people. Um, you talked a little bit about Twitter. There's quite a lot of, you know, for people who are in um, financial Twitter, there's a lot of chatter about it. And it's, it's very interesting, um, some of the people who I follow that um, have done some great work in this space. and. Um, they're fighting the good fight, and so I hope I can help in some way. Well, maybe an observation, not an excuse. I think one of the challenges we face on many fronts is that this is a great industry. It's really not a profession. And I think uh, the law profession, the accounting profession, the medical profession has done a very good job of moving this direction. My wife graduated med school uh, over almost uh, 35 years ago, and her class was 50% women. 35 years ago. So it's harder for us to, to get that channel going. And there's a lot of great organizations. So I think 100 Women in Finance is a sponsor here. Uh, we just got to figure out better partnership uh, there as well. So we just have about uh, eight minutes left. And I, I want to maybe the, the, the final discussion about uh, di digital disruption, because it's been a big topic at this conference. Uh, and uh, every session I'm in, somehow, some way it comes up. and. Uh, it may not uh, reflect itself in an asset allocation decision by any of you, but it's certainly on the forefront around algos or, or maybe uh, uh, hedge funds that are using algo-based uh, decision-making models. But Al, maybe starting with you about 
how does this affect Helmsley? Are you thinking about it? Uh, are you seeing managers that have more algo-based, uh, data-driven uh, 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 investment processes? Yeah, so the, in the hedge fund space, the, the hedge fund managers that, that we invest with um, are all based on just bottom-up fundamental research, so not, not necessarily uh, quantitative-based. Uh, having said that, uh, in several pockets within our portfolio, whether it's some of our long-only quant managers that are introducing some uh, machine learning analytics uh, uh, factors into their models, or whether it's uh, some of our VC managers uh, building out uh, data systems and uh, to figure out what's going on in the, in the startup world. And so we are starting to see uh, some of that uh, technology being used across our managers, uh, but it's not, it's not like we're necessarily um, uh, committing or allocated to a fund specifically focused on that. But having said that, in terms of broader disruption, whether it's technological disruption or whether it's disruption in the healthcare space, uh, we really try to you know, find uh, managers uh, that can uh, especially in the VC space, uh, identify the, the trends and then invest behind those trends. And we, uh, that's why within our private capital portfolio, we have such a big allocation to venture and uh, growth equity. I think that it represents about 25% uh, of our overall portfolio, so about two-thirds of our uh, overall privates. So, Angelique, maybe a slightly different angle on this, and, and being from Boston, uh, a couple observations. One is I worked for a trust company, a custodian, early on in my career, and I always thought that was a horrible business. Uh, less than one basis point, you know, make it up in securities lending and, and short-term investment funds. Brown Brothers was acquired by State Street, two local uh, Boston operations, at least headquartered there. And I look at that acquisition, I say, wow, this space has changed a lot, and data is the new oil, and the amount of data that these custodian banks have and, and the impact of that data could be enormous. So uh, I don't know if you deal with your custodian or not, but, but are you expecting more and different things from your custodian and data from them and analytics that help you make any kind of decisions either around operational alpha or investment decisions? Uh, we, we do. Um, we Recently, we actually changed custodians a few years ago for that very reason, because we've had the same one for so long that we were wondering what else is out there. And so obviously technology is, it was a big aspect of it in terms of reporting and everything with custodian. I don't personally deal with custodian all that much, but I remember we were going through that process. We're kind of doing the same thing with consultants. We're right now looking around. We don't have too many, we right now have one, but. We want to know what's out there, and, and obviously, well, technology is like a big part of that RFP kind of process. I, I, I think you just have to, and the managers also, even fundamental an, uh, analysts. You have to have data, you have to have technology. Computer can process things a lot faster, and I think those who don't pay attention to that stuff are going to miss out in the end. Well, I, I saw recently that uh, DTCC is talking about going to T plus one. And I was thinking when I started in this industry was T plus five. And I just looked up just today to see how long it took us to get from T plus three to T plus two. It took us 24 years. 
And to now be talking about T plus one measured in days, it's beyond silly. It should be measured in nanoseconds. It, it's, uh, it's crazy. So uh, Gita, from your standpoint, any uh, uh, disruptive technologies or opportunities around either managers or operational alpha? Um, so similar to Angelique, we also changed custodians a couple of years ago um, and are also thinking about um, our use of consultants. I think that that old model of the you know traditional kind of um, field consultant is very different now, and a big part of that is due to the advances that we've been able to take advantage of in technology. There seem to be so many ways that we can use tech in our day-to-day -day investment process that I think we're just we're a little like we're just a little behind the curve relative to other allocators in this space. There's a lot that we should be doing that we're not doing yet. Um, so I think that the the providers who can harness that and can sell it as a real advantage relative to their competitors are going to be the ones that are the most interesting to us. Um, from a manager perspective, we're very similar to our very bottom up fundamentally focused. So. I, I get plenty of emails where I just have to say we don't really do quant. Um, but that being said, I think there are a lot of ways that fundamental managers can take this, these technological advances that we've seen and enhance their process, enhance the way they do business, whether it's trading or whether it's analysis, whether it's you know um, ex, ex post sort of review attribution. There's just a lot out there that are more pieces of that puzzle that we should be thinking about as we make investment decisions. Uh, thanks. So we're just down to a handful of minutes, so I think we're moving toward uh, closing time. And I think it's always good to put a, a ribbon or a capstone around this, either a closing observation, something we missed. Uh, Al, uh, I'll uh, maybe give you the first crack. Um, so I guess uh, a general comment. I think the last five, 10 years, uh, from, from the allocator's perspective, it's been uh, it's been, I guess, fairly fairly easy, right, to generate strong returns. If you've, essentially, if you had more risk, more higher allocations to equities, higher allocations to to, to venture and, and tech, then you did really well. Um, I think, given how quickly the markets have recovered following the pandemic, and given how uh, uh, extreme the valuations are today, the the next several years are going to be much more difficult to generate. Uh, returns on, on beta alone. And so I think for every allocator and organization, you really just have to figure out what skill sets and advantages do you have. Uh, Helmsy as well, like what advantages does Helmsy have compared to other allocating uh, peer organizations? And really try to build uh, and identify investments that leverage that uh, edge and that skill set of the team members that we have on our team. And I think that's the only way we can invest with conviction uh, with evaluations today. Thanks, Al. Gita? Yeah, I would just um, take that idea a little bit further and say it's um, probably time for us to spend some good, solid block of you know, our research and thinking about what is it we're missing? You know, what, are, what are the gaps in our process? What are the gaps in our team? Um, you know, where are the skills that we're lacking? And you know, I could think off the top of my head at least three or four that you know, we could really use some work or we could really use some um, expertise in this area. And so I think making those hard decisions and thinking about you know, where's the best use of our dollar? Every dollar that we spend on the investment team is one less dollar that goes to providing healthcare to our community. So we need to be very thoughtful and very deliberate about how we um, spend our, our money. And some of that is probably gonna be thinking 
through what uh, tools are out there that we should be using. Thanks, Gita. Angelique, final word? <laughs> final word. Well, one thing I'll say that's unrelated. Um, I, I'm reading this book. It's called Subtract. And everything I'm hearing, we always talk about adding things. And we're kind of predisposed to add things and we're incentivized to do. And sometimes, like Elle, for example, they have a very concentrated portfolio. And sometimes it's forced it to take a look and say, well, what can I subtract instead of just keep adding things? Yeah, I'll, I'll wrap it up point. on this. I think it's an excellent point. Weed the garden, uh, critically important. Uh, please join me in thanking the panel. Thank you.